Welcome to a new episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Alongside my partner, Ray Koob, I'm Marcus Goldman. With us today is Erica Blount-Danois, currently a full-time lecturer at the Kathy Hughes School of Communications at Howard University. Erica has also written for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Vibe, Spin, Sports Illustrated, People Magazine, the Washington Post, Wax Poetics, Quartz and the Root. Erica graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and Columbia University's Graduate School. School of Journalism. Erica also wrote a book in 2013 called Peace, Love, and Soul, Behind the Scenes of America's Favorite Dance Show, Soul Train, Classic Moments. It's available through all booksellers, and this week on The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, we want to talk about the importance of Soul Train and how it had a big impact on rock and roll in general, and we are excited to have Erica with us today. Erica, thank you very much for taking time. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that people are still in tune to Soul Train and we don't have anything comparable, like you mentioned, right now on TV. Definitely not. And I still remember as a little kid watching those dance lines on the Soul Train and just Mm -hmm. being blown away by how good the dancers were and finding out reading your book that they were all the professional dancers and I was like oh I thought that was just regular people who danced all the time I was a young kid and had no idea and totally naive first thing that I've learned on the podcast already Did you go down the Soul Train line or no? He didn't. No, I I never did, but <laughs> but I I loved watching it on TV and seeing all the amazing yeah. dancers and what they were doing, and it was I just was so a fun. Two viewer, I guess you'd say like the first round of syndication once they got outside of Chicago mm-hmm. was Philadelphia, and I started watching it. I guess pretty early on because I started watching in '71. I'm just not sure if I caught it right from the beginning. And in those days, if you didn't see it, you missed it. Forget it, right? Exactly right, yeah. Before VCRs, Betamax, all of that stuff, yeah. You just had to be there. It was crazy because it was way more fun than Bandstand, which had become, you know, even in the 60s, had become more of a let's all stand around and dance kind of a thing. This was people being creative and inventive in their dancing, and the music was way more fun in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And you wanted to learn all those dances from the dancers. I wanted to learn something. Erica. Yeah. I, you yeah. Know, listen, <laughs> Soul Train was cool because what it did was allow suburban white boys to celebrate their inner blackness and, and learn stuff about it, the moves. Like, I wanted to learn some of those moves. So when we got to football camp in, in the mid-70s, we tried to learn those moves so we could dance during our breaks to, like, yeah. the guys on Soul Train. But, you know. Suburban white kids have their limits. But that's okay. You got part of it. Have fun with it. Yeah, that's all that matters. Before we start talking about the history of Soul Train, it took you about two to three years to write the book, if I'm not mistaken. What prompted you to go down the path of sharing the story of Soul Train? Was there a moment that Mm. happened that you were like, hey, I want to tell this story? Well, it actually started with the dancers because, like you mentioned, you know, I tried to learn the dances as well, and I'm not a great dancer myself, but we practiced in the mirror. You know, sometimes we teased, but a lot of times we also just wanted to be like her, was Cheryl Song, who was the Asian dancer with the long hair. I remember her. Yeah, and so I was just curious, like a where are we now kind of thing, to see where she was. And I found her and interviewed her. And I was just going to do a piece on all of the dancers, the main ones anyway, the ones that were, you know, fan favorites. 
But when I started interviewing them, they had like these incredible stories. And then I started learning about the show itself and how historic it was. I started learning more about Don Cornelius and what he had done, you know, as a black man in the 70s to have this ownership of the show and then all of the offshoots that came with it. And so I was like, wow, this is, and it really just just kind of started writing itself, basically. So that's how I got into it. Was there a lot of material that you left out of the book or did you find as you were writing it that this was about where it needed to be? That's a great question. So there was material that a lot of the dancers, a lot of people that worked in the show that was sort of, I guess it's beyond salacious. It was just, there were things that I couldn't prove that. Beyond, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> that I did, that I did not include. And maybe there's a way to like do the, <laughs> the second part of that. But anyway, so yeah, so there's some things that I didn't include, but there's just so much history. And I hope that I got at least, you know, the most important parts. People who have read it. And even as I was researching it, there was so much that I didn't know that, for instance, the Soul Train Club in San Francisco, where Don Cornelius would have people that were on the show come and perform at the Soul Train Club. And one of them was Richard Pryor, and he recorded That Nigga's Crazy, the album. At the Soul Train Club? At the Soul Train Club. Wow. Which is crazy right and i didn't know that they allowed richard Pryor to do an entire episode of soul train as the host like who does that that's dangerous (laughs) that was dangerous exactly i could see you definitely wanting to learning stuff like this go more into the story of soul train as you hear more and more about it i'm sure it was exciting and i'm sure you were open jawed and surprised by a lot of the new stories that you were hearing about this as well before we jump into soul train a little bit more let's Talk about Don Cornelius. Who was Don Cornelius? What was his childhood like? So he was born on the south side of Chicago and went to, I think, uh, DeSable High School. And, you know, he was like you remembered him, this sort of very cool, laid back, you know, sort of street guy who had this amazing voice and a voice that was sort of soothing to the public. Well, first he worked as a taxi driver. He had a bunch of odd jobs before he eventually got into radio. So he was stopped by someone who worked on the local radio station in Chicago. It was actually a routine traffic stop. The cop said, do you realize that you have a radio (laughs) and he directed him to the local station which was wvon and from there he's sort of a pinch hitter for the djs when they were out and he also did the news so right yeah one of the people he ended up interviewing was martin luther king jr which (laughs) i mean (laughs) yeah so that was in the early days of don's radio career and about the same time jesse jackson was doing his operation breadbasket masses on saturday morning public affairs radio station have always been required to do and it was a great way for Martin Luther King to get exposure and I can only imagine that interview being absolutely incredible and breathtaking to be able to do it new and fresh in radio Mm -hmm. agreed yeah and I mean knowing what we know now about Martin Luther King just imagining (laughs) just 
Kevin Matt. Yeah, Jesse was just starting out with. No, I had no idea about this part of what was going on behind the scenes. This Mm -hmm. is really intense. And I didn't know that he had that kind of contact with Dr. King. Yeah. In fact, Dr. King came to the Soul Train building and when he came at the top of the stairs, he was like, this is, what did he say? He said, this is Black Power because... You know, he had the national sponsorship with Johnson and Johnson. You know, a lot of people that were working behind the scenes that were black, you know, from the camera people to the producers, et cetera. And Martin Luther King was at the point where he was talking about economic power. And he's like, this is an example of it. And you don't think of Soul Train like that. You think of Soul Train as, you know, it's a lot of fun. People are dancing, the colorful costumes. But it also was a business entity that helped to get, you know, Black people at the forefront of TV, which at the time was not really happening with the exception of, like, crime stories, etc. So... The question I have is, do we get around to having Black entertainment television without Soul Train in the chain? You know, linking it all together from the idea of it to getting to that point where there's a television version of Motown, everything is on overload, everybody's producing, Stacks producing, Muscle Shoals, everybody's kicking out all this great music all through the 70s, into the 80s, the changes that are happening, and yet it's getting out there through this entity which is creating business and creating a business model for television for black entrepreneurs. Absolutely. I don't think any of the, like you said, black entertainment television, TV one, any of those could have existed without Don Cornelius's impact and his success, really. Because right. it was the longest first run syndicated show in history. I had no idea that was the case, but I, I had no idea no. really of his popularity. You when know? I looked into the episodes and, and how many and how many seasons and all, my head started spinning after a little bit because I was trying to like you know piece it all together mm-hmm. and then i heard we were going to talk to you and i said let's see what we can learn from erica because you did all that and yet i still feel like i learned a lot more about the show just getting ready to, to talk to you and, and even more than i thought you know i have one question for you the person who told him the cap that told him that he had a really good voice for radio do you think he knew how right he was and did he ever walk around you know going hey that don cornelius <laughs> on tv i told him he should be doing that exactly like he should get a check or something. <laughs> or something. <laughs> tickets to the show i don't know exactly right <laughs> be able to dance on the show i don't know something well you know it could represent it could have been a predecessor to the uh, village people in his police unit. <laughs> oh yeah, see yeah. see okay well, putting it together much. yeah with uh soul train coming together How did this turn from a vision into reality for Don Cornelius? Because being black in America in the late 60s, early 70s in the communications industry was an uphill climb no matter where you were and in what position you were in. So how was he able to get through but still continue to stay true to himself? Yeah. So the Chicago version of the show was this black and white version of it, you know, just in this small space. I think it was like a 10 by 10 space. Kids came, you know, lined up around the corner to come and dance on the show. And they were, I know you probably remember, there were a lot of dance shows like this around Mm -hmm. the country. We had one over on the East Coast called the Moon Man Show, which was in Baltimore. So you were like a local celebrity if you danced on the show. (laughs) So that show became so popular in Chicago. 
And Don, as the host for it, became so popular that everybody was clamoring to be on the show. And so when Don bought that show and had ownership, you know, he didn't pay a lot of money. I think it was maybe $400 for that. Wow. It was unheard of. Right. It's unheard Great of. business move. Right. And he had no idea what it would become. But I think having that ownership allowed him to really do whatever he wanted to do. And he did from having Richard Pryor as a host for an entire episode to like having all different kinds of artists, you know, Elton John, everybody, you know, that it didn't matter if they resonated with the audience. That's what he did. So, but I think he just, the the ownership angle part of it is the reason why he was able to do whatever he wanted to do. He seemed to be very big on perfection or as close to being perfect as possible. That is what the interview and the dancers, that's what they talked about the most. Like he was really, you know, rigid in terms of them being on time, them perfecting the dances, them looking a certain way. Mm-hmm. And the same with his staff from the camera people. So <laughs> he was not an easy boss to work for, actually, from what they told me. But perfection was the key, uh, particularly for a group of people that were primarily Black in a landscape that was not. So I'm sure he had a lot of pressure around making sure everything was perfect. Did Don Cornelius become more intense when they went from local show to national show? Yeah, definitely, because they moved from Chicago to Los Angeles and, you know, went from black and white to color. Did it influence of lifestyle things, the difference between L.A. and Chicago have a lot to do with that moment where you paused and went, oh, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, so, you know, Chicago is like it was like him sort of, you know, laid back, cool. L.A. is. (laughs) It's bright lights and wild colors and, you know, it's exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's what the dancers were. They moved from the slick suits and the shark skin and, you know, the lizard shoes to these bell bottoms and bright colors and wild dancing. You know, they just did like two step in Mm -hmm. Chicago. Did any of the dancers that were on the show, professional dancers, as you tell us, in Chicago, did any of them make the move to L.A. to stay on the show? A lot of them, yeah, actually. A lot of them ended up moving to L.A. And some of them were already in L.A., so... What is the football player's name? I'm forgetting his name. Walter Payton. Walter Payton, yes. He was a dancer. Patrice Russian was already in L.A. She's a singer, so she was a dancer. Wow. But, yeah, a lot of them came from the local rec in Los Angeles, but some of them did make the move because when it went to L.A., it took off quick. Right, and the talent pools deeper because it's L.A. Exactly. Yeah. They weren't paid, but a lot of them moved anyway. I was actually going to ask you about that. How did he get away with not being able to pay the dancers who were such an integral part of the show? I guess it wasn't then technically illegal not to do it, but that was sort of the place to be. So they did it. You know, that was the way a lot of them. I was just going to ask you, do you think it was grandfathered in because, hey, everybody else did it back to when Bandstand was one of the only ones. Everybody did it because the kids wanted to be on the show, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you were, again, a local star if you ended up on Soul Train. A lot of them parlayed it into real careers. So Tamita Joe Freeman ended up dancing for the Queen of And look at that Walter Payton. He did okay, too. He did all right. (laughs) 
That's so wild. The whole Soul Train idea came from the whole basement party concept where teenagers would gather in a basement. The parents, I think, would be upstairs or outside while the kids are dancing downstairs. We're hopefully away for the weekend. (laughs) That's the house we wanted to be at. Yeah, exactly. But I read that it was like the urban answer to the suburban sock hop and (laughs) maybe even a distant cousin of the juke joint, which was in the earlier days in Chicago two yeah kind of a mix of all three yeah they also used to have concerts that would travel around sort of like the chitlin circuit and they also called that the soul train in chicago concerts one of the things i read in your book was that because don cornelius was a radio personality in chicago the chess records and the motown records came to him and his station first for play did that continue with soul train as far as music goes when he moved to la as a bigger national syndicated unit absolutely yeah because now you're talking about national tv exposure so he had the connections with wvon which was you know a large station in chicago but now people came to him because everybody wants to have their artists on national TV and particularly like, you know, a Soul Train platform. So, yeah, I don't know if there was pay to play kind of deals, but definitely people came to him at that point. Like I mentioned, Elton John was one of the mm-hmm. artists. Yeah, People so. wanted to be on the show. Let me ask you something about somebody that it took a while for that connection to happen with. Prince was on the show, I think, in 1986, if I'm not wrong. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he'd been around for a while. You know, most of the artists who were on Soul Train, a lot of them were promotionally oriented. They were newer artists or somebody who had a big record push, or they wanted to see if this record would play on R&B radio as well, inside of pop, right? Yeah. But it took a while. Prince was already pretty big by the time he appeared on Soul Train. It was kind of the reverse of the way things often worked with artists. Do you know why that was? Yeah, he talked about it. He talked about the fact that he didn't want to be limited to this, what he saw as just a Black audience. Although Soul Train did appeal to everyone around the country or, and beyond that, actually. So I don't, for whatever reason, he felt that that was a limiting kind of platform for him. Prince is uh, he's eclectic. He's kind of a different kind of guy. A thing unto himself. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Exactly. So by the time he got on there, I mean, like you said, he's already established and people knew who he was and how he behaved but before that i guess he was still trying to not be put into a box did don cornelius have a hard time understanding an artist like prince who was so different than any of the other artists that came on i don't know about prince i know he had difficulty understanding like hip-hop artists and considering hip-hop music but you know prince is a musician, you mm-hmm. know, seventeen instruments. You know, yeah, oh, like, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> nobody can really say anything about him musically. But, but why think, do you think Don hit the wall when it came to hip hop and keeping up with the times in that area? I think he was just a little bit slow to understand it, not just as an art form, but also as like a financial thing, like how it was catching on. And what the future of it was going to look like for him. I think it just seemed like a fad that was going to, you know, eventually wane. And then he said as much that because they're not playing instruments, he didn't consider it like traditional kind of music. And it's still here. But I'd heard that conversation going on back then myself. And I said, yeah, 
but listen to it. Listen to what it's saying. Listen to how it feels. Mm-hmm. And some people never got it. And it always surprised me that Don was one of the guys who didn't. Yeah, I think it's just a generational divide. You know, youth music, you're like, ah. <laughs> and when you get older, everybody has this, well, jazz is better than whatever. And yeah. I think he You know, was- that's a lot of arguments get started that way. You know, but <laughs> That's why we do a thing we call five favorites. Like with you here, we could do our five favorite Soul Train moments or something like that. But mm-hmm. we're not prepared for that today. We're just wanting to talk to you about all the stuff that you learn that you can impart to us because we like getting information from people who know shit (laughs) (laughs) and and that is fair okay no it's not we (laughs) we do a ton of research and when we found that we could talk to somebody like yourself who did way more research than we're going to be able to do and i did like two three hours of digging into stuff and episodes and who was here and who was there and looked into all the different hosts down the line as things change Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that was because it was such a strong business thing that they weren't going to let it get away the business wasn't going to fold because dom was out right yeah yeah exactly but i think they miscalculated that because don was really the face of soul train no oh. doubt about it. I don't know about you guys, but I definitely I stopped watching maybe like late nineties, early two thousands. I'd say mid nineties. I stopped watching it early to mid nineties. And see, my world has been in a constant evolution. So somewhere in there in the eighties, I think I lost it, and a whole kinds of stuff was going on in my world. Things that were mashing up and mixing up musically and so i was just like moving on to other ways of finding music and seeing music too wanted to go out and see stuff yeah exactly yeah live concert it is time to pause for the cause during this great conversation with erica blount danois she is the author of love peace and soul behind the scenes of america's favorite dance show soul train classic moments and we are discussing the history of soul train don cornelius and its impact on rock and roll and music and entertainment too you're listening to the imbalanced history of rock and roll and we'll be right back here in the wintertime, you still need a great sock because you're going to find a way to work out. Like when it got warm the other day and you told me you were going for a ride, you know, you got to have great socks. And since they started sponsoring our podcast last year, I know when you hit the road, you've got a pair of bold foot socks on those feet. I do. I love my bold foot socks, whether I'm riding outdoors or spinning on a spin bike. They wick the sweat off my feet so I don't get that mushy, yucky, swampy foot feel after doing something athletic. And when it's 40, 50 degrees and the wind can drop the temperature down another 10, having a sock like Boldfoot on to keep your foot a little warmer makes a big difference when you ride. Sometimes when I wake up in the morning, I can hear Marisa working out downstairs. And I know that she's got her bold foots working overtime when she's working out with Jillian, you know? Definitely. Whether you're working out or going for a ride, or if you're an aggressive walker, you got to check out boldfoot.com. You can pick your design. They have so many to choose from, and a portion of all sock sales go directly to veterans charities. And, of course, all socks are made in the USA. Veteran-owned, American-sewn. It's Boldfoot Socks. Thanks for the support, gang. It's always great to stop here in the middle of the Imbalance History podcast and have a little pint of Crooked Eye in the heart of Hapro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. But that doesn't say much about 
what they are and what they do. Crooked Eye is one of those brew pubs that is really tight within the community. And you really get a warm, friendly vibe when you walk in there. They've always got music. There's food now because of the Salty Vets barbecue, and they keep bringing out new brews on a regular basis as well as the old standbys. The winter brews are on the board. Go in and have one and check out some of that Salty Vets barbecue as well. And the entertainment at Crooked Eye, it's always changing, so follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Grab some friends, grab a date, head on over to Crooked Eye for some lovely beers and wonderful food and great in, atmosphere. In the heart of Hatboro, pouring the cure for what ails you. They are Crooked Eye Brewery, and we thank them for their support of the Imbalance Podcast for about a million years now. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Let's continue this Soul Train conversation with Erica Blount Danois. It's the imbalanced history of rock and roll. But it was great when you were a kid because Saturday, you know, you could turn it on. You knew it was going to be on. You could plan part of your day around it. And if you had chores to do, they'd be done in time to watch the show. Because it was the hippest trip in America, you know? I get to love these words. I'm Don Cornelius. The way he said things just made me go, wow, I'm blown away by the depth of his voice. Now, here's your host, Don Cornelia. Hello and welcome aboard. You're right on time for another magnificent ride on the Soul Train. We'll be looking right back at you with a big smash by Cheryl Lynn right after some... And, you know, yeah. as radio guys, we get caught up in that crap. Yeah. It's interesting when you look back now, just that we had that kind of a show and, and we don't have something like that now. Like, you yeah. know... And we had appointment TV, like, you know, we would come in from... That's it, right there. 
the way people used to make an appointment to see shows, even if you had a VCR that you could set to record it and stuff, if you could figure that out. The fact of the matter was, everybody went home on Saturday night to watch Saturday Night Live when it was a big thing, right? In the late 70s and early 80s, things like that. And that's what it was because it wasn't like fighting with everybody for the control of the TV. It was Saturday. It's my time. I'm not watching cartoons. I'm watching Soul Train. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Saturday Night Live, you had to make sure you didn't fall asleep. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what you're talking about, man. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. I don't know if did you guys see Motown 25? Uh, yes. My, yes. That was when Michael Jackson did the moonwalk. Mm-hmm. And it was such a big deal. for. And if you missed it and you came to school, you didn't have anything to talk about. We were like, wow, he just did some kind of magic show. Didn't he learn a lot of moves from a lot of the Soul Train dancers? Because those Soul Train dancers culturally played such a significant role in shaping dance as we know it today. Yeah. So Jeffrey Daniels talks about how he and Michael Jackson worked together on the moonwalk. So Jeffrey Daniels ended up being part of the group Shalimar with Jody Watt. He started out as a dancer, and yeah, he talks about the moonwalk. But doesn't James Brown really kind of get the credit for being the root of it all? Because he's the one who taught them all how to dance and make half those moves before any of them were even born. Or when Michael Jackson and I were like back five. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, because Michael Jackson copied a lot of James Brown's moves. Yeah. And then also the local kids, too, were just making up dances as, you know, they went along. And the stuff that was going on in the street was reflected by what was happening in the studios. Exactly. And to some degree, that was true of Bandstand. But man, Soul Train had it all covered. Mm Mm-hmm. Agree. I saw stuff on TV. I went, wow, that's going on, man. There are people who are dancing like that in the clubs. And I went, I am so sheltered out here in the suburbs. Bandstand got stale. I would watch Soul Train more in the late 70s, early 80s because of that. I loved all the dancing on Soul Train. I just wish I would have had more flexibility in being able to do some of those moves. But I tried and tried and tried and never stuck. It translated to other clubs. Studio 54. Studio 54, yeah. Yeah. We've talked about that place before, but never an episode about it. We should do that at some point. Not only did the show see great success over many decades, Don Cornelius was a visionary and had side businesses that were parallel or ran in conjunction with Soul Train. Do you want to talk about some of those businesses and how they impacted or had an impact on culture and society and Soul Train as well? Yeah, absolutely. So the Soul Train Awards is still in existence. So he said that Black artists weren't getting the kind of recognition that they should have on, you know, I guess the Grammys and, you know, other award shows. So he created the Soul Train Awards and then also the Lady of Soul Train Awards. And then, like I mentioned, the Soul Train Nightclub in San Francisco. Also, the Soul Train Record. There's <laughs> a whole catalog of music from the Soul Train Records label, which eventually became Solar Records. So... Those are the ones that, off the top of my head, the businesses that were offshoots of Soul Train. Have you spoken with the people who bought Soul Train, the franchise from Don Cornelius, and... 
are they staying true to the vision of Don Cornelius, but of course modernizing it as things are changing and much more different in the last 10 years? Yeah, I mean, what we've been waiting for really is to have someone put together a compilation. I mean, there is like the best of compilation, but of all of the episodes, I would love to see, like there are bootleg versions all around the world but just to be able to have all of them and be able to watch all of them so they are also were planning to do a soul train musical on broadway not sure they were or they are i don't know i haven't heard because during the pandemic it sort of got stalled so Mm. i'm not sure i need to find out where they are with that wow that'd be news Mm -hmm. right Something yeah. like that. You have all kinds of possibilities. That's for sure when you're putting it together. Exactly. Who doesn't want to see that? So, yeah, those are things that I can think off the top of my head. And then, you know, of course, Johnson & Johnson Products was their national sponsor. And so, you know, all the commercials, the you know, with the Afro Sheen cosmetics mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. He had a hand in that as well. We were talking about Don's difficulty in embracing hip hop. Mm-hmm. Even so, there were so many great artists later that weren't really hip-hop that really got their big break by being on Soul Train. And I'm thinking of people like Macy Gray, Indy mm-hmm. Ari, yes. and John Legend was a guest, too, who really made an impact off of his appearance. Yeah, so it's funny that he did eventually embrace hip-hop. So there were a lot of hip-hop artists that were, like you said, very happy to be on the show. So you Yeah, know. and you see that on the lists of uh, the episodes, yes. you know, yeah. as you go through with people, you know, on sometimes hosting or, you know, being the guest featured artist. Exactly, yeah. Common. Right. He's on with Macy Gray and Alicia Keys. What a show. The show was so revered that... Like you said, you know, John Legend, like everybody wanted to be on Soul Train, even though it had sort of peaked and was sort of past its prime, but still was this historical platform that if you said you were on it, you made it, (laughs) you know? There were some people who actually, you know, said that, you know, superstars in their own right. They were like, but I... I haven't been on Soul Train. You know, I haven't made it yet. Yeah, Bobby Brown said that of New Edition, which you wrote about in your book, which was a great little story, too, because I remember when they started breaking out as a new, young, upcoming band and how good they were in their early days. Mm -hmm. Also, you use a Hunter S. Thompson quote at the beginning of Chapter 5. How did you pick that quote as one to use? Do you want me to read it to you? Yeah. The music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. Hunter S. Thompson. (laughs) It's one of the great quotes about the music business ever. Absolutely. Yeah, he's brilliant. So, yeah, I mean, I think I was talking about that as it relates to Dick Griffey and and Solar Records and all of the madness that went on with that. And he's, you know, this big, bulky sort of... I mean, if he he could have been a mobster if he was Italian, like that kind of a deal. And that's what that whole chapter gets into was what the music industry was at that point, sort of a free. I think that was part of what made Don go, nah, 
Because everything he did and everything he built was legitimate, you know, all yeah. on board. Yeah, but he and Dick Griffin are sort of cut from the same cloth. I think Don Cornelius is a little more laid back about it, but he was from the south side of Chicago. But True. I think that the record industry was just sort of a distraction from what, you know, the focus he had on the show and, you know, what he wanted to do with the artists and what he wanted to do with other brands as it related to Soul Train, because... A record label is a monster. You know? mm-hmm. It's a full-time thing. You don't oh, kind absolutely. of half-ass it, that's for sure. Exactly, right, yeah. Speaking of which, the show was very key in the emergence of a young record label, a young woman named Sylvia Robinson and the Sugar Hill Gang. Rappers delight in the return of Apache and really helped to establish a record label. And that was something that was a, like on the road to hip-hop in the rap days, right? But Sugar Hill Records, man, it became the thing and helped to establish more black ownership of the machine. Yeah, I remember that's one of the first hip-hop albums that we got was this one on the Sugar Hill label. But yeah, I think it also sort of propelled this whole entrepreneur spirit as it related to labels as well. So, you know, a lot of independently owned labels came after that, including a lot of hip-hop labels. And yeah, I think Soul Train Records was sort of the precursor of all of that. You know, there had been some too as well from, you know, Sam Cooke in the early days, but there was a proliferation in the 80s, particularly of independent labels. At one point, Everybody had a label, right? Or it seemed that way anyway. They did, yeah. In the later years of Don Cornelius's life, was Don Cornelius happy and satisfied with what he created? Was he proud of what he created with Soul Train and the whole empire? I think he was definitely proud of the entire empire that he created. I think, you know, as a perfectionist, there was more that he wanted, more that he wanted to do. And I think, you know, as a perfectionist, also, you're never satisfied. (laughs) So I think in the later years, he may have sort of been resentful of being sort of typecast as just Soul Train because, I mean, he's a brilliant mind. And what he created in terms of business was probably, if not more, it should have been celebrated as much as the show itself. But, you know, he's sort of just known as the host of Soul Train. There are a lot of business owners who don't know how much they owe. To men like Don Cornelius and other owners, too, people like Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson, who we're going to be talking about on a future episode. What's your view of those two as a pair of partners in the world, Smokey and Barry? (laughs) So Barry, first of all, he's just amazing. Like, I don't know how he's managed to, you know, first of all, he looks great for his age, but (laughs) just managed to keep... Motown in the spotlight, even to younger people. I think Barry's whole way of going about business too, particularly as it related to Motown, like he had quote unquote an integrated staff. So that meant whoever was the best person was hired. So that could be, you know, black, white, Asian, what have you. And so I don't think that was really happening before Motown. So I don't know if he gets enough credit for that. But I think, that, you know, the two of them are just everlasting. Yeah. Like, they're here. They're, yeah. It feels like they're here to stay forever. 
Absolutely. Yeah, and I love their moments in the uh, the Motown uh, documentary where they're uh, hanging out in the studio by the piano, making bets and just remembering fun stuff. Yeah. And they seem like those kind of friends to me. So mm-hmm. I'm just wondering how you took that pair as they're getting ready to be honored. Yeah, I know they have stories. Getting back to uh, Don Cornelius, we haven't mentioned his suicide yet, which is sadly an important part of the story because you were working on the book when he completed suicide. Do you remember where you were and what you were doing when you found out? Yeah, I was actually in a restaurant. I think I was in a restaurant eating. What I remember is that I got a bunch of text messages at the same time. Like it was, phone was just blowing up. And I looked at it and I was like, oh my God. First of all, I thought that was the end of the book for me. But I also was like, I would have never imagined someone, you know, with his sort of, what it seemed like anyway, confidence and status and success, you know, to commit suicide. You know, not knowing as much as we know now about Mm -hmm. suicide and so or as much really as i learned as well and so it was just a shock initially and then i started talking to people including the person who found him which was one of the detectives who had also had he was a detective for michael jackson when he found michael jackson as well but anyway so talking to them and just getting a better sense and you know friends and family and dancers etc just getting a better sense of who he was and the pressure that he was under and you know sort of being the first and what that felt like and you know there's never really an answer to why people decide to end that way. But I think there was definitely like a lot of pressure for him, like I said, being the first, but also, you know, the pressures of the business, the pressures of being on TV. And then the downside of getting older and not being as relevant as you were and, you know, the health issues that he had and the kind of pain that he was in. And so, you know, all of those things together can make- It mounts up, it builds up. I don't know if a lot of people, including myself, knew that he was having the constant pain and I think the seizures and some of the other things that were happening to him medically and so being in constant pain I get that part it's a sad part of the story to read about you did a great job describing without going into too much detail but still being able to paint the picture very clearly about his passing and I think you had at the very beginning the 911 call that came in yeah and then you talked about it you went and you from there you told the story and then at the end you talked about it again a little bit more as well and while it is an important part of the story you did an incredible job telling the entire story and it's a fascinating look at one of the greatest shows to ever be on American TV and one of the most fun and real shows to ever be on American TV and what did you learn about yourself during the writing of this book? That's a great question. (laughs) So, well, first, I guess I... Just in in doing the research, none of it was actually, it it was just so much more difficult than I expected it to be because a lot of the artists were difficult. (laughs) Not that artists are not difficult, but I hadn't expected. I I expected everyone to sort of be happy to talk about Soul Train and some people weren't. And so 
I think I learned definitely perseverance. And you know, I was just so attached to the story, particularly when I found out how deep it all was, that I just kept going until I got the story. So I guess the impact on me was, I guess, just the story itself and, and Don Cornelius's personal story and how, just like you guys said, a lot of people just don't know it. And I didn't know it. I knew him as a host and that's it. And I knew the dancers and that's it. But there was so much more to the story that just kept growing and growing. Sometimes the journey ends somewhere different than where you thought you were headed, right? Yes, definitely. Absolutely. Because initially I was just telling this story, like I said, of dancers that I wanted to be like, and it ended up going in a whole different direction. And you just got to kind of follow that. And 10 years later, we're still talking about it. <laughs> become part of your life story, your song, you know? Right. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. You're right. Yeah. Did the book change a lot after the passing of Don Cornelius or did only a few pieces change? It definitely did because it, it just made me think differently about the book itself because initially I'm, you know, I'm thinking mostly about the artist and the fun of it and all of that. But it made me think about what his personal demons were, you know, more in depth about who he was and what, you know, the, maybe the mask that he had to wear as this celebrity and what celebrities go through. You know, I think Robin Williams, I can't remember if he died before. Yeah, but, you know, Robin Williams was like the most fun guy you could think of, you know, uh-huh. especially as Mork. And how could you not love him? And then how does he end this way? Like you would never have guessed. So it also made me think more about, you know, mental health and what people are going through and how it presents itself. You may not know. So I think it changed, I guess, just a little deeper than what it was initially. And I know we're all over the world with the podcast, but here in the U.S., now we have 988, which is a quick way to call if you need somebody to talk to. There's an additional thing. If you're a veteran, you call 988, and then you hit one, they will take you right to a person who wants to talk to you if you're a veteran suffering anything, any kind of problem. Give them a call. There was a slight subtle but not subtle political side to Soul Train. How was Don Cornelius able to pull off the political aspect of the show the way he did? You know why? I think because he couched it in this entertainment. So he kind of slipped it in. People thought they were just, you know, dancing and singing. But there was also political commentary happening in between that. And so I think he just did it really slickly. You know, he talked about the Black Vietnam veterans that he had the author that came to talk about that. Like he talked about all different kind of political things, but he did it in a subtle way. Again with us today is Erica Blount-Danois. She is the author of Love, Peace, and Soul, behind the scenes of America's favorite dance show, Soul Train Classic Moments. Is there a favorite moment of yours from the TV show Soul Train? I think, I guess maybe when Don goes down the Soul Train line. (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, he actually ended up falling because he's not a great dancer, but... (laughs) (laughs) Made me feel better. Exactly. Because I'm not a great dancer answer either but hey don's doing it (laughs) probably dance better than don maybe we forgot to ask this earlier but are you on social media and can people follow you on twitter or instagram so yeah instagram it's actually it has a soul train logo and it's at erica blount e-r-i-c-k-a-b-l-o-u-n-t i'm on facebook too oh you know what it's even better though i have a love peace and soul 
page on Facebook. So it's just love, peace, and soul. I do a lot of fun stuff on there. And initially, when the book first came out, we had contests for people to do like the scramble board and they would get a free book and all that kind of stuff. Lots of fun stuff on there. Where can people get this book of yours to read? So Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, all of the main places. Love, peace, and soul. We'll hit up some links on the apps and on our website so people can find it easily if you go to imbalancehistory.com and click on the episode our conversation with erica man i'm learning stuff and i'm just enjoying the stories and your view of it having learned so much your perspective has really been great for me oh thank you this has been a lot of fun for me as well thank you so much erica and we will make sure we get you all the links where the date of release will get you all that information and we will uh share it with you and we'll make sure we tag you properly i'll send you the email link and then i'll text you to let you know that we have sent that on email because i know you're getting ready to start a new semester of classes up ahead (laughs) yeah but yeah are you teaching any intro classes like math Com classes that have like 250, yeah. 300 students. Oh my god! Oh boy! Oh my god! <laughs> so and they're all freshmen. The <laughs> class. Oh, well, good luck with that. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Again, thank you to Erica Blount-Danois for taking the time to talk to the imbalanced history of rock and roll. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, or a Soul Train story that you'd love to share, please feel free to email us at imbalancehistory at gmail.com. Stop by our website at imbalancehistory.com as well. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at the imbalanced history of rock and roll. So until next time from the Dark Doc Studios, we are a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Time to go. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this has been the imbalanced history of rock and roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.